guys, welcome back to the Black and Roll podcast. I'm your host, Tino Kadar Tondarai Vonzarbaya. No, I ain't gonna repeat that. Here's a podcast that is creating the dialogue and the space for black men to be their most authentic selves. Now, my guest today is Carl C. Pope, who has been a teacher for about 12 years, and he has been in so many different um, spaces and teaching spaces, and um, he's worked with children with special needs. He's worked with children that are in um, alternative provisions. Um, he's seen a lot, and um, he comes onto the podcast to talk about some of these experiences, um, how being a teacher has shaped him, um, some of the stories that he's heard, and some of the lives that he's impacted as well. Um, we discuss a little bit of that, and, and uh, he's also an author um, of Action Hero Teacher. Um, which is a class management um, resource, which what book, um, and so we talk a bit about that, and uh, that's what gets peppered into the whole conversation. And we also don't go on a rant, but um, he's quite passionate about the education system and how it can be changed. So we get into that a little bit and some of the effects of austerity on society. Um, and so I think you guys are going to really enjoy this conversation. If you're a teacher, if you're a child, if you're a student, um, if you're a parent, like I think we can all benefit from hearing about um, the education system from the perspective of a teacher um, who has been in lots of different uh, provisions. So um, I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. Let me give you a little snippet of um of what you've got to look forward to. So um bear with me in a second. Let me just mm. Now, I know somebody on the podcast. Well, it was actually 1895, actually. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, come at me, bro. Yeah, come at me, bro. I'm on Twitter. Twitter at Actionera Teach. Yeah, come at me. <laughs> Roughly around that time. So it, quick maths again. That's over a hundred, hundred and something years ago. Yeah, a while ago. A while ago. It was a hot minute ago, as they say in East London, right? I could jump in my TARDIS right now. I go to Victorian in England. I go to one of the first schools and there's a man called Montgomery Smith, a teacher. And I say, Montgomery Smith, I want you to take you to the classroom of the future. I'm going to take you to 2022. And you are going to go into a modern classroom. And Montgomery will be like thinking, wow, what is it like in the future? I'm sure there'll be aliens and flying around. Now, apart from the whiteboard, right? So like the interactive whiteboard, apart from the technology, is exactly the same. You still sit um, students in rows. You make them um, wear the same uniform. You let, make them put their hand up when they want to ask you a question. In fact, I could probably get Montgomery Smith, give it a week or so, I can get him teaching like a, a modern teacher. Now that mm. is damning. That is an indictment on the education system. The education system is a relic of the industrial era. The reason why, and again, what I'm saying is not conspiratorial. This is what Sir Ken Robinson um, uh, said in his TED talk, as the most popular TED talk I think of all time. He said everything what, what I'm about to say. What you've got is during the Industrial Revolution, we moved from the agricultural age into the Industrial Revolution. And I've wrote, sorry, a quick plug. There's something on my website called Teaching Generation Z where I talk all about this as well. 
and they, there's a there's a bit of an interplay. There's a bit of a, 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 a crossing over. When we're talking about SEMH, a lot of the time we're dealing with young people who cannot access the mainstream curriculum because of perhaps the traumas and because of this. I can go really deep, but I'm trying to keep it simple. They can't. They find it very difficult. What you find with SEMH, what how it presents itself is that these young people have difficulty in forming trusting relationships, in forming mm. cohesive. Uh, mutual relationships and this blocks them from learning. So for example, if you've got a young person who's been abused, physically abused, violent, you know, verbally abused, and they come into school, they may have, and imagine this has gone on for years and years and years, they will have an issue. So if, you know, they might have, they might have an issue trusting adults. So when an adult sh- shouts at a person, this just say this particular individual, then the adult in his head is like, sit down and take off your jacket. In the adult's head, they're thinking, you know, it's a simple instruction. But to the young person who's got SEMH in this particular case, that is a threat to their life. Because when they go yeah. home, when the adult shouts, that means something bad is going to happen. So that young person might react violently. That young person might walk away. That young person might space out. All right. So they've got what we call a maladaptive response. Okay. So when we're dealing with SEMH, which makes it slightly different to SEM, because SEM, we're talking about accessing the curriculum and learning. SEMH, we're talking about trying to create an environment that these young people can feel safe and these young people can respond in an appropriate way. And it's not their fault. So for example, and I write this all in my book as well. So for example, a young person, when we talk about maladaptive response. To you, right? Mm. Very conversational. I don't know if you've read my book, but it's very, very, I wanted it not to be dry. I wanted it to be humorous. I wanted it to be literally that like you could hear my voice in your head. All right. Yeah. And I remember when I went to go and write this, I had a black colleague of mine and he said to me, it's a brilliant idea, Carl. It's a great idea. But he goes, no one's going to want to buy your book. And I said, why mate? And he goes, cause you're a black man and they don't respect black men in education. Another black man told you that. Now, the joke of it is what I discovered later. When I was looking at UK British black men that have wrote books, I could only find two before me. I could, I'm not saying there's, there's no others. I'm not saying, yeah. but it's, it's rare. So you had Bernard Coates, who wrote a book called the, oh, I've forgotten the title. It's a long title. Um, education, the, the, um, the education system, it's basically how West Indian children are felt by the education system. They made educably subnormal. And this was in small acts um, as well. So that, that he wrote that in the 70s. Then you've got uh, Dr. Tony Sewell, the infamous Dr. Tony Sewell, wrote actually a great book. In- hey guys, so um, I hope you enjoyed the snippets that you got there. Uh, um, and I just thought... Um, let me just share that with you. Let me just, uh, let me just wait your appetite for what you've got to listen to. So, um, I hope you guys really enjoy this conversation. I really enjoy talking to Carl. Um, we have a lot of laughter in this, even though we're discussing some serious topics. Um, but that's just me to be honest with you. So, um, I loved having Carl on the episode. Um, and you know we're going to do a sequel at one point so uh, you're here at the end but uh, 
but yeah i hope you guys um enjoy this episode and um please tell me what you think um on the instagram twitter at black and raw um or you can email me speak at black and uk. um i'd love to hear your views and your opinions and your thoughts on this conversation or even maybe your thoughts and opinions on the education system and maybe what you've experienced as a young person or an adult or parent or a teacher. Um, So um, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I know I've said that more than once, but um, I'll let you actually listen to the episode now. So um, here is my conversation with um, Carl. um so carl welcome to the black and raw podcast it's really good to have you on thank you so much tina i really appreciate being on appreciate it's all right man it's all right bless bless up how's your day been how how's it been the way you are it's been muggy man at this time of recording it's not been like the nando's chicken heat grilled <laughs> heat that we had but it's muggy now so it's a sticky heat so it's, I don't know, it's weird. So there's clouds, you think it's cold, but when you go outside, it's sticky. It's not it's nice. Warm, yeah. oh, it's all ne- hmm? That's all good. That's all good. You never know what to wear in England, do you? No. <laughs> never. Never. So, no, that's blessed. That's blessed. Thank you for joining me today. Um, and so I would have given you already an introduction before. Um, and so I guess what I just wanted to sort of get into it, um, you've been a teacher for about 12 years now. Um, am I right to say around that time? Yeah, definitely about 12 years. Quick maths. Yeah. I, love it. Even <laughs> I, I had to work that out. I was like, wow, how long have I been in the game for? Uh, <laughs> yeah, 12 years, you're absolutely spot on, sir. Yeah, so I guess I guess all of your 12 years of experience then, um, like how was your journey? At, what, what was your journey into teaching actually um, when you sort of started off? It's a very, very strange one. I never meant to be a teacher, to be absolutely honest. It, it, it's, it's probably the most peculiar journey well not the most peculiar i'm sure there's there's people that have got more weirder stories than me but basically what it is basically if you if you spoke to my 16 year old self and said you know what do you want to be in your life what would be your dream i wanted to be jay-z i wanted to be a rapper that was my my dreams in fact that my icon or the person i wanted to be was kanye west around the time i started producing is when kanye came out so quick maths for those who can figure it out so but you well I was, I've been doing it before, but Kanye was my dream. I wanted to yeah. be a rapper, very preppy, that type of thing. If you told me I was going to be a teacher, I would have laughed my heads off, my head off. My teachers would have laughed their head off. It would have been hilarious. But life is funny. So I worked in the private sector for a bit. Uh, I won't mention names of companies. I don't want you to get sued. But uh, basically, <laughs> a lot of unscrupulous uh, dealings which caused basically redundancy. So I got made redundant twice. But to be fair, I didn't really like the jobs that I was doing. So sales and marketing type of jobs. Okay. I didn't like it. Um, so what I ended up doing, uh, so I got a fat redundancy package. Thank you very much. Nice. You know, <laughs> nice. You know when they say, we'll give you a year, a year like a lump sum of a year's uh, salary, or you can renegotiate for your job. I was like, give me the bag. Give me the, give bag. Me the money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be out of your hair. Don't worry about that. For a young man, you know, you, you felt like I felt like I was a rapper. I was balling in the clubs. I had all the money. Yeah, no work, chill. But obviously, for a young twenty-year-old, that's like a lot of money—a couple of tens of thousands of pounds. But anyway, so I got that, and then I thought, okay, what am I going to do with my life? So one of the things I really, because as I said, I loved music. 
I knew my way around the studio. So I went to a music studio and I was basically like a studio engineer. But the projects that they put me on was dealing with a lot of children, especially vulnerable children in East London. And yeah. basically, um, so I went from being a studio engineer to a youth worker. So I was running like workshops in the music studio, how to make tunes, but also, also mentoring and talking about life and, you know, coming off the road. So I was meeting the Duchesnes and Sullys um, of this world. Uh, Tom mm. Way. I met them all, Jamie's. Uh, those were my guys. <laughs> You've seen them all. Exactly. Have you got the food, bro? Have you got the food? It was them type of guys. <laughs> so um, the manager, uh, a guy called Matt, bless him, of the centre, said, you know what, you're really good. You'll make a really good teacher. And I was like, oh, and you know, you get paid more money. And I was like, cha-ching, money. I like that. Money, so, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I see money was starting to, to dwindle a bit. So I was like, hmm, been balling out in the clubs a bit too much. No, no, only joking. But you know, at the time I was thinking, okay, I can make a go of this. So um, usually with a normal teacher, they go through something called the PGCE route, which is basically mm-hmm. a university. It's like you do a bit of uni, then you go on two placements in a school and then you do something called, uh, we used to call it, it's called ECT, but NQT year, so newly qualified teacher year. So that's the year where you're basically uh, a trainee teacher in a school with the lessons and whatnot. And once you pass that, then you're a proper teacher. Now okay. they've changed it to something called ECT, which is early career teacher, which is two years. Okay. Um, so I, instead of doing that, I did something called a PETALS, which is preparing to teach in the lifelong learning sector. Um, it's slightly different. And then to cut a long story short, the pathway, it was PETALS, then something called DETALS, which is Diploma in Teaching and Lifelong Learning Center. And then it gave me something called a QTLS, which is Qualified Teacher Learning and Qualified Teacher Skills and Learning, I think, um, which is the equivalent to something called a QTS, which is Qualified Teacher Status. So it's the same thing, basically. So yeah. I went this route. Um, I became a NEATS coordinator, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later. So NEAT basically means not in employment, education or training. These are usually the people that get put in what we call pupil referral units. Or yeah. So if you get excluded out of school um, and another mainstream school don't take you, you still need to legally be in school by, uh, up until you're 18. So you get put in a place called alternative provision. Okay. So it's kind of like half prison, half school. And that's what wow. I did a bit. Yeah, I did that. Really? For yeah. Oh, sorry. What, what are they like? Then you described it half prison, half school. Like, so what? Uh, what did you notice oh, when you went in? So the statistics are quite bleak. So basically, um, what we 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 found was if with a neat student, so neat, as I said, not in employment, education, or training, if these guys do not get any form of qualifications, um, i.e., GCSEs or any form of uh, uh, employment, uh, viable employment, um, w- which will build to a career they were 80 to 90% more likely to take part in antisocial activities. We're talking gangs, being a perpetrator or a victim of crime, country lines, prostitution, drugs, you name it. So m- me and my department were like, the men in black were the first and last line of defense. Mm-hmm. Where I worked at the time, which was about six or seven years ago, I worked in a place called the Isle of Dogs. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, no. Quay, South Quay. So basically in East London, you've got Canary Wharf, and then yeah. right next to it, you've got one of the most deprived areas, not only in London, but in the UK at the time. Okay. okay? And I always laugh because when I went to work, I had to go through Canary Wharf and I'm sure you're familiar with Canary Wharf. That's Lush. Like the economic Lush. powerhouse. Yeah. You've got bus suits. We're talking, you know, people with Rolexes, you know, fancy cars and literally two stops away was one of the most deprived areas in the UK. And when I was working there, a quarter of all asset attacks, so it's a place called Tower Hamlets, and yeah, a bar of Tower Hamlets, I believe, and a quarter of all acid attacks took place in this part of East London. So it was a very, very dangerous time. This was the post Cold Wars. So I did that for about three years, 
Um, so I was running a team and basically my job was to design alternative provision, i.e. Um, what you tended to find. So the question you asked me was, what were they like? Now, if you've been thrown out of school, chances are you're not a very happy bunny. You're very disengaged with the institution of education. So that's what we call in education, a barrier to learning. So if you've been kicked out of school and it doesn't matter what these kids say, yeah, I never liked school anyway, bun school, you know what, shut your mouth, did it, right? Behind all that bravado, there's a sense of rejection. You've been yeah. school, you've been made to feel not good enough, okay? So when you come into alternative provision, most people don't want to be there, like prison. So what you have to deal with is you have to, I had to learn the psychology of these young people. And I got a lot of great training um, from organizations such as CAMS, which is Child Adolescent Mental Health Services. Yeah. Youth Offending Team, which is part of the police for Matrix. We had all manner of, you know, people coming in to try and help us to deal with these young people. But unfortunately, because of our very, very ingenious and efficient government, uh, <laughs> around 2014. Very efficient. Very efficient. Yeah. Around 2014, it was announced we have austerity measures. And about 2015, 2016, they hit. So basically, um, under David Cameron, um, what ended up happening was, I don't know if you remember when David Cameron said, we've got a million apprenticeships and we are, the government are funding it, right? They are robbing Peter to pay Paul, basically. So that money had to come from somewhere. So yeah. what you, and again, for your listeners, have to understand is that when, the, when it comes to government funding, there's certain departments which are what we call, what is known as ring-fenced. I didn't know this until it happened to me. Ring fence mean there has to be a minimum level of, of funding, i.e. the military. You can't, the government are not allowed to take all the money out of the military. Like say, we're not giving you no money this in the budget. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It wouldn't happen. Police is the same. Hospitals are the same. Schools are the same. But further education, alternative provision is not the same. It was under right. something called the business and innovation business innovation and skills department, I believe. And it was under a guy called Vince Cable, who was a liberal Democrat. And what they did, the government, was they took all the funding. So that's not ring fence. They took all the funding out of there with one hand and threw it on all these apprenticeships. What does that mean? It meant that I lost my job again. <laughs> so, oh, made redundant again. Made hey. redundant again. I've been trying <laughs> to run away from this, man. Made me redundant again. Um, but the, the, the sad thing is that I remember when I was packing up my, my, my box, we were given three months and they yeah. said, you know, we can't run it anymore. And basically my company I worked for were trying to get emergency funding through like companies like Deutsche Bank. And anyway, I shouldn't have said any names, but you know, um, <laughs> and I don't I hope people don't come to see you, you know, so you mentioned. No, no, let's hope not. <laughs> Deutsche, they're a wonderful company, by the way. But anyway, um, but we're trying to get funding through like these big corporates and unfortunately, uh, we're trying to get something called a parachute parachute payment. It didn't come. Okay. It not come. Yeah. Time. So we had to close down. But I remember saying to my colleague, there's going to be blood, blood on the streets. There's going to be blood on the streets. And lo and behold, pre-COVID, um, knife crime, gun crime, violence escalated. In fact, COVID was a blessing. And I, I don't mean it in a very, I don't even mean it in a glib way. Of course, people died and whatnot. But for a period, all the knife crime and the gun crime stopped. Unfortunately, yeah. now that we've reopened, all that's starting to creep back up again because they'll, um, uh, the places like myself, the youth centers, all these things were all closed down. They were all yeah. closed down. The EMA was taken away. Um, all the incentives uh, for young people to go to college, the sixth form, all the um, scaffolding there, the EMA money, all that got taken away. So this is what ended up happening. So I drifted into mainstream schooling um, because I had uh, a qualification which 
had parity in mainstream schools. I can go and teach in mainstream schools. Yeah. And all of my colleagues were like, oh my gosh, you know, how did you do that? How did you calm him down? You know, oh my gosh, like, you're fantastic. You're great. <laughs> as much as I like to blow my own trumpet, it's not because I was great. It's because um, basically I realized that my, my PGC colleagues did not have the level of training I had. They didn't have yeah. It's like um, I had. So after a while, people kept on asking me, how do you do with this student? How do you do this? Cut a really long story short, that became the Action Hero Teacher and that changed my life. And I'll probably talk a bit more about Action Hero Teacher, but I wrote a book three and a half years ago, I can't believe it, um, called The Action Hero Teacher, Classroom Management Made Simple. Yeah. Uh, came out, I sold 30 copies in the first year. You know, I think that was my friends and my mum might have bought two copies as well. <laughs> back in you though, back in you though. <laughs> I, was, I, I had dreams of being J.K. Rowling and you know what I mean? Being a billionaire and, you know, people making my life story and Jamie Foxx playing me. It, it, it just didn't happen. That it didn't happen. Um, it didn't I'm sure we'll get into it, but then certain things started to happen and then all these magical things happened in my life. And now I'm a business consultant or uh, sorry, an education consultant. And yeah, I'm going to go into that full time. Uh, it's very, very soon. Very soon. Okay. So you've, you've, you've done a lot (laughs) in your 12 years by the sounds of it. Um, and even just, I guess, like picking up on the point when you terms of talked about like austerity and how that hits schools and provisions, it's quite saddening because (laughs) as you said, our government very efficient, they, you know, they do one thing and then they then act all surprised when knife crime and gun crime and youth, youth, youth offending and all of this is up when you took away the barriers for, which sort of protected them from that. Like it's, it's quite saddening because something as simple as having youth centres, you would have never, they never thought about the tangible, you know, benefit money. that that had. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, true, true. Money. So, you know, these are, these are drains, unfortunately, not to get too political, Unfortunately, under especially this particular government, not this particular, not the party, because that's what I try and say to people. Yes, you can say there's conservatives or Labour or Liberal Democrat, but they're different flavors. Under this particular government that we've had, this particular strain uh, of government, it has been particularly nasty. Um, and as at this time of recording, as you've seen, um, it's been particular leaders that have been quite irresponsible, um, and, and it's a big problem. And I'm sure we'll get into it later in the podcast. What? what I believe my, in my humble opinion the problems are yeah no definitely um and so I guess also um <laughs> obviously unfortunately there is sometimes a little bit of a not necessarily doom and gloom but sort of a sad aspect in terms of our education system and things like that but I guess I just wanted to know maybe what are some of your fond memories during your teaching career um yeah fond memories to be honest with you my fondest memories probably in my teaching career is when I was a NEETS coordinator. And when yeah. I talk to people, <laughs> people talk about, when I t- tell them what I did for as a NEETS coordinator, people act like I've been given some illness or something. It's like, oh, oh, you poor thing. You poor thing. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, you know, it's, it's all right. It's like, yeah, I dealt with kids that were excluded from school. Oh, you poor thing. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, it's all right. That was probably my, one of my funnest times. Um, it was really feeling like I was making a difference. I'll, I'll give you... If you indulge me, I'll give you a quick story. Yeah, you go. Uh, I love indulging, so you can go. Absolutely. Um, so I remember when I first got the Neats job, you know, I, that was what the time, you know, I, was, I thought I was rolling with the big boys, that I'll be in charge of a budget, I'll have a team, 
you know, all these good things. And I'll never forget this incident. I remember, so what I had to do was um, the center that we we worked in. We So basically what it was, was that we were, it's hard to explain. So imagine I've got, there's a college. Yeah. And then we work with alternative provisions. So okay, although then. we had our own students, sometimes we'll be seconded to other places to go and support and build. So one of my things was we're building courses and helping, you know, sort equipment in other places and advising other places. So this was kind of, these kids were being brought to us. And I'll never forget this. When I walked in, uh, I had the course director and the managing director, and they looked really like pale, like really like worried. So I remember walking in the building, I'm like, is everything all right? So they ushered me into a room and I was like, okay, what the hell's going on? So imagine this is my second or third day on the job, right? They yeah. Said, oh, um, I don't know if you watched the news yesterday. And I said, no. And they said, basically, there's been a stabbing um, in East London. And basically what's happened is the boy was murdered and oh. we believe, um, so the boy that was murdered, there was a group of boys that I looked after or a group. Of yeah. Boys. That was his friend. I said, okay. All right. So, all right. So obviously that was, and, and I said, how are they? And he goes, they're, they're devastated. And I was yeah, like, of course. Now, the thing that complicated matters was as, well, I shouldn't say as you know, sometimes what happens on, when, it, when, when it's like, on, on, when we're talking about on road, right? What sometimes yeah, yeah, happens, yeah. someone gets murdered, but the people know who did the murder. Does that make sense? Mm. But they won't tell the police. They yeah. The police get involved. So everybody in the area knows who killed, just say the boy's called John, for want of a better word. Oh, John, yeah. got, murdered. John got murdered. Who did it? It was, it was Tyrone. But no one's going to snitch. So these boys knew who killed their friend. Mm. And the fear was these boys were going to go and retaliate. Okay, then. What I was told was that you have got to keep them there. You can't let them leave. Because if you do, they're really high on emotions. We're thinking that they're conspiring to go and find the guy and kill the, uh, these. The okay. Other guys. Quite a heavy thing to put on you three days in. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So it was a bit of a sticky one. So the police, in a way, it's almost like a race against the time. So the police were trying to find the guy uh, before these guys got to them because these guys um, the guys I looked after unfortunately were not they weren't you know from the school of Mary Poppins this was from the school of Top Boy this was the Shane and Sully's in the making yeah. um, so <laughs> I went downstairs in the studio there was about I'll never forget there was about 10 of these boys all hooded up tears in their eyes not even oh, talking. No. I had a lesson plan so as a teacher you have a lesson plan I thought in my head well that's out of the window so uh, I walked in there and I was like it was silent like and I'll never forget, one of the boys said, move, we're going. Loudest, bondness. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. Well, I won't swear because it's a family show. <laughs> you get the idea. It was very... Yeah, 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 yeah. I understand. We all very understand. Fair, yeah, very yeah. But they were like, move, get out of the way. And I said, okay, what, what are you going to do? What's going on? You know what's going on. You know what's going on. Don't, be, don't ask stupid questions. But I could see the joke of it was these boys were between the ages of, I think, 16 to 19. Yeah. But they were still children. So they were crying and that. So cut a long story short, I said, look, I can't physically stop you from going. Right? I can't physically stop you from going. But you going to, and they were open. They said, you were going to find the guy and we're going to kill him. And I said, okay. You yeah, go. okay. Okay. What's he going to do? Oh, but he killed our friend, George. We can't. Oh, I said, I'm going to say the name. But he killed our friend, did it, did it. We can't, um, what you going to call it? We can't have that. We can't have that. So I said, all right, tell me about your friend. What was he like? Oh, so-and-so wasn't even like that. He wasn't even deep on road. 
he was, he was, he was a nice guy. And I go, do you think your friend, if your friend was here right now, you yeah. said he's not a road man. You said he's not even, he's, the, the tragic thing is, is, is guilt by association. He wasn't that type of guy, but because he hung about with those types of guys, the ops must have just said, that's my man's friend. Let's get him. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. So I said, what did your friend, what did your friend do? What did your friend say? He goes, nah, he'll say, allow it. And I go, think about his mum. His mum's grieving. Do you think his mum wants another mum to cry? So then, I'll never forget this. I went, um, we had a studio next to the classroom. So I yeah. went to one of my colleagues and said, open up the studio, open it up. And I said, because these guys were rappers, they loved the rap music. Yeah. I said, all right, what I want you guys to do, absolutely true story of what I'm telling you. What I want you guys, it makes me a bit emotional thinking about it. I go, what, you, what I want you guys to do is I want you to write a letter to your friend who died and say all the things you, you, you know, what you wanted to say to him. Because a lot of them felt like, right, I just saw him yesterday and da, 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 da. And it was one of the most beautiful moments in my life. When I said, yeah. They were rapping, like the managing director, course director came down. There, were, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. So like one of the boys was saying, don't worry, I'm going to look after your mom forever. I'm going to, you know, don't worry, we'll, you know, we're going to look after your mom, your, your peoples will never forget you. And it was one of the most beautiful, I, I've got to be careful with that word. Obviously, it's a very tragic circumstance, but out of that tragedy, yeah. was, there was a, a, a hint of beauty in that, to have these young people and... You know, and, you know, the police eventually did come down and whatnot. To be honest with you, I don't know what became of the boy that did the murder or whatnot, what have you. But it really made me feel I made a difference. That itself. I've had days in teaching where I'm like, I just want to strangle people here. Not children. (laughs) (laughs) People start calling calling the feds. But, you know, there's days where I feel like this is a waste of time. I still have them. But that, for me, always stands out as a memory because it was just so beautiful. And I still got the song, ironically. Yeah. And it was one of the most beautiful things that they, they, they took that energy, like, I want to go and kill him, to something, and they made a tri- tribute for their friend. It was beautiful. Something I'll never forget. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, sort, of, I'm sort of trying to stop myself from tearing up, to be honest with you, because... Yeah, like, as you were saying, they're 16 and 19, like, to deal with, like, the death of your friend, who who you say wasn't on road as much, but sort of was by association, so it felt a bit more like, I wasn't even doing it, so, like, why was he there? Why, why did it happen to him? Maybe they're thinking, why did it happen to me? Like, I'm doing most of it and stuff. Yeah. And, like, I, yeah, I mean, you helped them process their emotions, I think, which... If they had just gone and done something rash, who knows what would have happened with the rest of their lives? You know what I mean? Like, and just making making song, yeah, yeah, yeah. making song out of it too. Like, and that's what uh, happens. Sorry to cut you. That's what exactly what happens. One boy gets stabbed, one girl gets stabbed, one person gets stabbed, then they go and retaliate. And that's why you see, like in London, I think five months ago, four there were four murders or four stabbings. I can't remember. And they were talking about, you know, I remember everyone saying, Sadiq Khan, what are you doing? London's out of control. Yeah. What ends up happening? It's a never ending cycle of violence and retaliation. And I I always used to say to the students, it's a bigger man to squash a beef than to make a beef. Any man can go and stab somebody. Any man can go and get a knife out of the kitchen drawer and go and stab someone. But it's a bigger man to walk away. It's a bigger man, you know, it's a bigger man to kind of squash things. And again, it's all this thing of, uh, 
you know, not going to allow man to violate me. Who does man think they are? And I'm like, what does it gain you apart from a life sentence or death? It doesn't yeah. gain you anything. You know, you're going to be, do you want to be a 50 year old man? You're going to go in at 20. You're going to get an M charge, murder charge. You're going to get life, which is 30 years. And then you're going to be 50 with nothing. What, what, what are you, what are you looking to achieve? You know, so I had these conversations quite regularly with these young people. And yeah, those were my present, those are my fondest memories of teaching. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a memory that's going to last with you forever, to be honest with you. Like, even as you're saying it, like, it, it probably seems so real, just like it happened the other day. Mm. Um, and yeah, like, yeah, I don't really know even what to say. I think those boys went through something that was so tragic. And at least being able to take a step back and like reflect on it for them and write something which they probably are still thinking about that song till this day. Like you said, you still got that song till this day. And like, it's only cathartic for them at the end of the day. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a good memory. That's a good, that's a fun memory to have, to be honest. Thank you. Thank you. You know, that's what we do. That's, that's, that's the whole point, right? Yeah. And I think that's like onto like I'm not in a little tangent, but like in terms of like appreciating teachers and appreciating the staff that work with these young these boys, like anyone to be honest with you, any teacher in any school, like you always think of, you can always think of that one teacher that did something for you or that went out the way to do something for you or like supported you in a way which you never thought would happen, mm-hmm. and. I think you got, I think they're just underappreciated to be honest with you and that they need the space and time to do these things because those are the things which are going to help someone more than just sit down, learn this, learn that. You know what I mean? Like it's those soft skills which are going to take them further. I've got very strong opinions, uh, but I don't know. I don't want to ruin the flow of your things, but I've got very strong opinions on education, but um, no, absolutely. You're right. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, we can go into them and it's part, it's part of it. Um, <laughs> so I guess, are you sure? I, can, I don't mind talking a bit about it because I, I was about to say a thing for me as well. I think education, you're hearing Richie Sunak going about education is important and this and that and they're the future of our generation. A hundred percent, yeah, but I haven't seen anything from your government that has suggested that that's what you're trying to do. This interview is probably going to get me in trouble in, in years. <laughs> I don't really care because this is how I feel. And again, a lot of people uh, are like my, myself. There was a guy called um, Ken Robinson, Sir Ken Robinson, who mm. did a TED Talk called Do Schools Cre- Kill Creativity? And I think it's the most watched TED Talk ever. And Sir Ken, the late Sir Ken Robinson, he died about three years ago. Um, right, he was an advisor, I believe, to the Tony Blair government or the Brown government about education. And he basically said that. The education system is, 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 is archaic. It's built for a different time. We are teaching 21st century children in 18th century classrooms. And again, in that TED Talk, which is absolutely fantastic, he breaks the whole thing down. If you look at, really quickly, if you look at the history of, uh, of education, on modern education, in fact, no, I won't even go into it. I wanna, I'll, do, I'll do it in a very simple analogy. If Imagine I was Doctor Who, or I had the yeah, power, yeah. and I had a TARDIS. And I could go back through time at the birth of the education system, in our particular case, the British education system, which I believe the Children's Act was signed in 1894, where it said children have to be mand- uh, have mandatory education. Now, I know somebody on the podcast, well, it was actually 1895, actually. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, come at me, bro. 
yeah, come at me, bro. I'm on Twitter. Twitter at Action Era Teach. Yeah, come at me. <laughs> Roughly around that time. So it, quick maths again. That's over a hundred, hundred and something years ago. Yeah, a while ago. A while ago. It was a hot minute ago, as they say in East London, right? I could jump in my TARDIS right now. I go to Victorian in England. I go to one of the first schools and there's a man called Montgomery Smith, a teacher. And I say, Montgomery Smith, I want you to take you to the classroom of the future. I'm going to take you to 2022. And you are going to go into a modern classroom. And Montgomery will be like thinking, wow, what is it like in the future? I'm sure there'll be aliens and flying around. Now, apart from the whiteboard, right? So like the interactive whiteboard, apart from the technology, is exactly the same. You still sit um, students in rows. You make them um, wear the same uniform. You let, make them put their hand up when they want to ask you a question. In fact, I could probably get Montgomery Smith, give it a week or so, I can get him teaching like a, a modern teacher. Now, mm. that is damning. That is an indictment on the education system. The education system is a relic of the industrial era. The reason why, and again, what I'm saying is not conspiratorial. This is what Sir Ken Robinson um, uh, said in his TED Talk, as the most popular TED Talk, I think, of all time. He said everything what, what I'm about to say. What you've got is during the Industrial Revolution, we moved from the agricultural age into the Industrial Revolution. And I've wrote, sorry, a quick plug. There's something on my website called Teaching Generation Z where I talk all about this as well. And my yeah. education. It's a free ebook. It's absolutely free. Go to my website. Sorry. Shameless plug. Shameless plug. Shameless plug. Come on, come on. I'm not a businessman. I'm a businessman. Oh, anyway, uh, I love Jay-Z. I'm a Jay-Z stan. But as I was saying, went on a tangent. If you look at, um, at the time it was created, what you had was we had the Industrial Revolution. We moved from being mainly agricultural, um, you know, farming, living on subsistence to starting to work. This was the birth of modern work. And we needed to train the population for these jobs. And that's why we have a grading system. We literally grade our children like we grade products. So if you looked, at, especially in the old school factory, whether it's cars or you name it, paper, you process it. And then somebody quality assures it. Says, okay, this car is good. If the car is good, it passes, you move it along the chain. If the car is bad, what you do, you say it's defective. Or you give it a grade and you say, this is what needs to be fixed. Okay? Well, sometimes you scrap that car altogether. You say that car can't be made. And it's exactly how we do the education system. We look at certain different children. We process them through the system. We give them a particular grade. And, and, and another reason why we had the grading system was to uh, was to tell employers how um, the mental acuity of that particular student. So if you've got an A grade student, of course you, you could give him more managerial um, tasks or give him more uh, abstract thinking tasks or creative thinking tasks. If that person is a D grade student in old money, you could say, all right, that person just works on the shop floor. It was a way that yeah. I look and say very quickly say, who, where can I fit this person in my organization? Now, we have moved from the industrial era into the information age. In fact, I believe that COVID-19, sorry, something, something right. outside my window, <laughs> to be aware of what's going on. Uh, you never know if Duchesne or Sully are coming in the house. I'm only joking. But <laughs> if, we look at the, if we look at the way that things have changed, right? If we look at what happened with COVID-19, if we look at overnight, everything went online. While we were all locked down, work went online, everything went online. Okay. Never has that happened in human history. We are facing the same way we study 1939, 1942, 1945, 1969, 1972, whatever age, the same way historians focus on those key moments in human history, a hundred, 200, even 300 years from now, people are going to be looking at this time we're living through right now from 2020 to 2022. Yeah. 
this is the, it was the death of the industrial age. Mark my words, people. The nine to five, the forty forty plan is done. The forty forty plan, forty hours a week for forty years, and you get a nice pension and a nice gold watch, and you get a nice retirement is over. They say that the millennial generation, and again, this this is part of my new book, Actionary Teacher Two, which I'm writing at the moment. They say, so if you look at our grandparents' generation, maybe those who were born in the 50s and 60s, they can work in a company, one company their whole life, two companies max, all right, and have that same job, all right, and they can get a decent pension. If you look at a millennial, they're saying, statistically speaking, millennials will change careers 10 times minimum times they retire. I've been talking about myself. I have done so many jobs. I'm yeah. not even ashamed to say it. Since I graduated from uni, I've cleaned banks. I've done roof lines. I've been. I've sold roof lines to people and gutters to people. I've done marketing. Uh, I've done marketing. Uh, what else have I done? I've done marketing. I've done um, advertising. Uh, I went into education. I went into music. So I became a music producer. I did this. So already, even just talking about myself, look at the amount of different jobs and careers I've done. Even from yeah. teaching, I'm teaching now. I'm becoming an education consultant, or I'm an education consultant. I'm an author. So if we counted up all my jobs, I'm surely almost above 10. Probably, yeah. I wasn't counting, but I'm sure it is. Probably. And I'm sure it's familiar with many of our generation. That's why we have some, the gig economy. We've got to stop lying to our uh, our children. We've got to stop lying. We're lying. This thing of, oh, you know, if you go and get a degree and, you know, you get a degree and then you get yourself a good job and then you're okay for the rest of your life. No, it's not true anymore. A lot of jobs are being, so the Bank of England, under the, the, the governor of the Bank of England, a guy, uh, under a guy called Mark Carney, he's gone now. Mm. He had to do a study. This was in 2014, I believe, when he was the governor of England. He did a study looking at the future of work. Okay. Now, his job was to look at the economy, to imagine what would it be like in 2030? What would it be like in 2040? Yeah. One, of, one of the things he was saying was that by 2030, 50% of the eligible jobs that we're doing now will be automated automated and we're not talking just manual labor here we're talking about things like law we're talking about things like accounting i speak i've got family that are accountants and they're telling me that there's software that can do the job of an accountant they don't need a human being anymore and probably the software is more accurate that's why there's all this talk about universal income because they're saying that by 2030 2040 you know people are talking about you know climate change we need to be talking about automation elon musk spoke about this saying one of the biggest existential threats to the human race is AI. He said it's literally like letting a demon out of the bottle. Now, I'm not talking about the Terminator stuff. AI robots, all of that. All that type of stuff. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about the simple fact that, you know, jobs are being automated. You know, there's there's the Amazon shop in London where you don't even need to talk to a shopkeeper anymore. It's called Amazon. (laughs) Yeah, it's called Amazon Go or Amazon Fresh. You walk in there, it scans your face, it connects it with your Amazon account, you pick up your goods, I don't know how it works, and it somehow deducts it from your Amazon account. What does that mean for retail? When we look at things like in America at the moment, where you've got the self-driving cars, the only reason why they've not been able to bring it to the UK is because America, the way way they plan their cities is more like on a grid system. So you know, you know, walk up Fifth Street and Ninth Avenue, because it's a grid. It's literally like a grid. We don't have that because we're an older city, right? We didn't design it that way. But they're going to figure it out. They will figure it out. What's going to happen to all the taxi drivers? There's, they're already talking about, um, they're already doing a surgeries, robot surgeries. You know, all these things here. What is going to happen to all those industries? 
we look at, we laugh when we think about Blockbuster. I don't know if, I don't want to say uh, Nah, nah, nah. I loved, don't worry, I loved Blockbuster. I was there. I was there for Blockbuster. Absolutely. Blockbuster, I believe. And again, someone's going to be, well, they're going to quote me. I'm, I'm, I'm going off the top of my head here. I don't have the figures, but basically that by Netflix, who I think about a billion dollars. Yeah, I heard about that, yeah. They're not going to take off. Blockbuster said, no, it's not going to take off. You know, who wants to watch it online? Because remember, it was dial-up internet. And I run it. Where's Blockbuster now? It's gone. Netflix is there. Look at all these advancements in technology. Look at all these things that are happening. So we are training our young people for an age that is gone. We look, and again, all I'm saying is not conspiracy. This is fact. If you are millennial, if you're born between 1980, I think 1982 to 1995, your retirement age is 70. You know what the life expectancy of the average male person in the UK is? It's 72. So you are going to be working for most of your life and you get two years off, then you pop your clogs. That's what's going to happen. And that's why I know you can hear that. It's you, I'm really passionate about this because I've yeah. been in education for about 12 years and we are not preparing our young people for this age. And they know it. You talk to the young people, they say, well, what, 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 what's the point of school, man? What's it, what, what, learning about Shakespeare and volcanoes? What, what's it going to help me, bruv? It's not going to help me in my life. And don't get me wrong, I'm not slating uni, of course. If, if you're a doctor, if, you know, heaven forbid this, or you need to do surgery, where did you learn it off? YouTube. No, no, YouTube. no. no, 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 no. <laughs> doctor, please. I want proper doctor. I want please, doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seven mean, years, but, seven years. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, okay, if you take, if you take um, doctor to one side or engineers to one side, if you're, if, you're, if you're just telling kids to get random degrees, a degree in the, stru- the paint, the colours of paint, the different colors of white you can get. You're lying to the old students. You're giving them uh, a disadvantage in the real world. It's not gonna. It's not gonna happen. And again, I got sorry. I got really passionate. But nah, it's good, bro. It's good. This is the thing that I said. It's alarming to me. And another thing is, we're not even factoring in class. We're not factoring in race. We're not factoring all these things here, right? Because they are real things. I, I would say, and some people might shoot, shoot me for saying this, I would say class is probably even a bigger factor than race. If you look at the conservative, at, at this time of recording, if you look at the conservative uh, leadership um, race, because Boris has stepped down, and people yeah, say, you know, yeah. we've got to celebrate BAME. You know, BAME, we've got Kimmy Bandakoch, Bandaloch. Badenoch, that's it. Badenoch, sorry. Yeah. Mike, you've got Suella Braverman. You had, um, who's that fella? Nadim Zahari. Yeah, they've got a lot of them, haven't they? Yeah, this shows there's progress. I go, if you look at the backgrounds of these individuals, they are not from the same world as me and you. Rishi Sunak, his wife is the daughter of the richest man in India, I believe. Yeah, you're right. A private school. This is gonna bite me in the backside. Rishi, one day I might meet him. And he goes, "You're talking about me, weren't you?" Yeah, you're slaying me, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, saying, I'm saying facts. No, no, no. But, you know, true, true, true. From a completely different class to us, you know. And these are the things. So there's opportunities that these people will get. You know, if you go to Oxford or Cambridge as a university, you're potentially meeting future leaders of the country. You're meeting future heads of you know Fortune 500 companies. If you go to the university of Ilford, I'm just using a fictional university, University of Barking, yeah, what are the chances you might get a prime minister in there? Very unlikely. 
go to the University of Barking or the University of Stratford, right? Unlikely. And this is, again, another lie, which is perpetuated in our society, saying that, you know, we're in some form of meritocracy and, you know, everything is fair. If you're not going to a Russell Group University, and I, I, I speak to recruiters, you're not going to a Russell Group University, which are basically the top 20 universities in the country. If you're, you're thinking about getting into certain big corporations, they're not interested. They're mm. not interested. Fact. And it's, yeah, it's ridiculous that it's like that, right? Isn't it? Like, I went to... My undergraduate was Kiel University. And then now, quite fortunately, I'm doing my master's at University of Birmingham. Um, and just because I'm at University of Birmingham, I've now got people emailing me being like, let me help you with your CV. Like, and it's just literally it's just like Russell Group this. And I'm like, anyone could have used this, you know? Let me let me help you out, do this and that. And like you just said, it's like where like everyone needs these services. Um, and I think you're right in terms about like class or race. I think race is always a touchy subject and like, obviously we're two black men talking about it, but I think class, as you're saying, Richie Sunak is one of the richest men ever. Like he could go and literally retire in California and people were saying that about him. They're like, listen, man doesn't even need to do this. Like he could just go and retire somewhere and be fine. And so, and you just see the disparities between like, the classes like it's only getting bigger and only getting wider now um so it, it, yeah it's, it's a madness and I, I think the education system as you've been saying is built for a time which is gone and like i like i'm not just saying this just because you're on the podcast but like i've had this conversation with people it's like why are we learning about king king henry and his wives why aren't we learning about you know accounting or like um Property. Investment, yeah, yeah, property. Why aren't we learning about the things that are going to actually make you rich? But rather, we're learning about. And listen, I love volcanoes, bro. That was that was the one part that I loved in geography, yeah. But you know, learning about the Ring of Fire and all of that, it's not going to help me unless I'm a geologist. It's not going to help me, or unless I need to know where to avoid some months of the year. But you know, property investment, how to manage my bank account, how to make money, how to, you know, as we're saying, everyone is gig economy these days. So I'll go on. Give you a perfect example. Why on earth? No one's been able to answer this question. Go on. We have, a, we have, we have um, you can take a GCSE in English, in maths, in geography, in history. You could take a GCSE in cooking, food technology. You can take mm. a GCSE in Latin. You can take a GCSE in Polish or any other exam. Why the hell do we not have a GCSE on personal finance? How to open an account? How to uh, invest? How to, why do we not have that? Why not, okay, even, okay, let's, let's say that's too much to do. Because yeah. some educationists will be like, oh no, the curriculum, the curriculum. All right, I'll take you on. Why do we not just even have a, a semester or a term where we talk about buying a house? This is the basics of how to buy a property. Why do we not have that in school? No, is, that use, is that not useful? Is that not useful? I know yeah. the reason. I know the reason. I suspect the reason because again, the education system was designed, and again, Ken Robinson said this was it was to create workers. That's it. Yeah. It's to create workers to work in particular for particular institutions. And that is what it is. You can't. Oh, this is going to get me in trouble, but. <laughs> in trouble, but my belief, no, but this, this, this is the core. This is why I get really passionate. My dream is to open a, a, my own school, mm. and my school will be talking about the crypto 
you know, so for example, I learned that Jay-Z in his old neighborhood in Brooklyn, he's created a school. Yeah. And he's all talking about finance and crypto. And he's got under under a lot of flack because they're saying, you know, why don't you why don't you give all his money? What's the point of opening a school talking about finance when he can just give money to everybody? And I'm like, it doesn't work like that, bro. You know what I mean? No, he needs to know how to use the money. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> But I thought that was ingenious. And he's he's trying to get like um like some people from industry to come and teach these inner cities kids about investment, about property, about all these types of stuff, because that's useful. And don't get me wrong. As I said, if you want to do geography, I know people are going to be like, Oh my gosh, he's slating the education system. I want it to be reformed because it's failing the people that need it the most. The people that go to Eton, the people that go to uh, the London or the Royal Oratory school, the people that go to the private schools are fine. They're insulated for what is coming because their dads and their mums, you know, are the managing directors of these big financial institutions or these big institutions. They've got levers to pull. They can parachute their children into positions. But if you're talking about kids that I've taught, the inner city kids, you're talking about the kids who, who have socioeconomic disadvantages, they need it the most and they're not going to get it. They're not even exposed to this. And this is what is the biggest crime because you, schools talk about in what we call enrichment, enrichment of the curriculum, meaning, you know, we've got to expose our young people to different experiences. So just say you're in a, you know, you're, you're from an estate in East London, enrichment would, the, the enrichment program might be taking you to the theater, to, or, you know, taking you to the West End to watch Wicked or a show yeah. or taking you to Oxford or Cambridge, you know, for a day trip to, you know, inspire you to get there. That's all well and good. I'm not poo-pooing on that. But it's more than that. You've got to give them the tools, the understanding. If you don't do that, because again, these the children that come from the upper middle class and the upper classes, they get this um, through osmo- osmosis. Their parents are talking about it at the, at the dinner table. They'll say, oh, hello, honey. You know, I managed to, we finished that merger with, um, with uh, Tino and Tino company. Oh, how much of that billion pounds? Daddy, what, was, what did you do? Well, what we did was we invested X amount of money. This is what I do. So they're picking all of this up. Yeah. Same age child in an inner city slum in East London. He's talking, about, he's talking to his mom about how we're going to keep the lights on. How we're going to pay this bill. The electricity and energy bills have gone through the roof. So that Shakespeare and enrichment on Oxford is so far from his mind or her mind. And that is what I'm passionate about. And that is why the education system needs to be changed. Yeah. I don't think I need to add anything onto that because <laughs> I, I, because I, I, to be honest, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Like, I, I think it's just, it's ridiculous. And I think for me, quite fortunately, like I'm in a place where I don't necessarily have to worry about those things, but like I've been to school with people that do worry about those things and, you know, it's it's sad because those exact same people probably just have as much or even more talent than I do um, or even more capability, more creativity. Like, but when you're thinking about how is my mom going to pay for bills? Like, how am I going to survive? How am I going to eat? And I think I saw this thing on Sky News today, perfectly like in time for this conversation, but it was saying that more boys are joining gangs now because of the cost of living, because they're wanting to, because the only way they can make money is by, you know, joining gangs or, you know, participating in these things because they want to put food on their table for their mom, you know, like a child shouldn't have to think about that. Like, it's really sad. And I think the education system doesn't necessarily 
account for that. And when you've got children, as you said, that are that maybe have additional needs as well. And we'll talk, I guess we'll talk about some of that too, but you know, they're just trying to then deal with that. And then you've got everything else to deal with, you know? Absolutely. It's just to touch on something you said there, right? Um, Although I've been joking about Top Boy saying the shades, yeah. I, I like it. I do actually like it because it's set in my neck of the woods where I was raised, right? One of the things I d- do like about it, because if you look at it from, if you just look through the lens of the Daily Mail, or the mm. sun, oh, gangs or animals, they're ruining our country, right? If you looked at it through that lens, you would think that these guys are not human. They're just violent criminals. But one of the, the storylines, the most tragic storylines in Top Boy, um, it's basically what you've got. You've got a, a young man, I think in the program called Ats, whose mum is an illegal immigrant. Uh, the mum hasn't got the documentation. And I believe immigration find her and say, basically, you know, you can't work because she's not a documented citizen. The job she was yeah. like, she couldn't work. So they were literally starving. So this young man, you know, bless him, he tries different things, but he's not getting the money. He ends up in a gang because he's like, look, I need to get money so that I can help my mum. And tragically, spoiler warning, everybody, he dies, right? He yeah. dies. He gets caught up in that gang life. They kill him. They stab him to death, okay? So what I'm trying to show is when we look at things like the gang and the, the, the criminality and you think, oh, these guys are just animals or fatherless homes, there's a lot more nuance. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some people who are clearly psychotic or sociopaths. I'm not, and I've met a couple of those guys. But there's a lot of things that are going on. It's a whole thing about masculinity, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to provide? Again, one of the characters, Jamie, who's one of the, the big, the potential top boys, he has to provide for his brothers because his parents are not around. He hasn't got the social support, okay? These things are all prevalent. There's another program I like. You can see a, a theme of the programs I watch, mm-hmm. called Power, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Power, yeah. And there's a really interesting line at the end of Power where basically the main character's name is James St. Patrick, Ghost. He's this mob kingpin, but he's a genius. Like he's a business yeah. genius. And, but he unfortunately got dragged into the street life. And the whole premise of power is he's trying to desperately leave and become a legitimate businessman. And another character called Keenan, who's his old business partner and he's proper married to the road, played by Fifty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, him and he says, who do you think you are? You're just like me. You're just a, a low down, dirty, whatever. But you know what he says? Go said, if I could go to college, there's a thing basically in his past where he had the opportunity, I believe, to go to this fancy private school. But for whatever reason, he couldn't take that opportunity. And he got dragged into the street life. And he said, if I wasn't on the street with you, I would have been running a, like a big company because I did what I had to do to come out. You never understood that. I did what I had to do to come out. And that's the archetype in The Wire with Stringer Bell. You know, So there are people that have got... The brains is the same brains as Elon Musk or or, mm. or or Jeff Bezos, but they haven't got the same opportunities, and that's the tragedy of it. And that's what we need to do in the education system to make it a true meritocracy. That the the the, the Elon Musks from Peckham, not even Peckham anymore, Croydon, from Barking, from you you name it, can come through and have the same opportunities as the Jeff Be- Bezos and those other guys there. Yeah. No, definitely, definitely. Like, I think I've I've had conversations with I think I've had conversations in my family where you're like people that 
I, I don't know anyone that's in gangs. I've never sort of came across that. But, you know, to run a gang, like, or to even just be doing all of that, it takes a certain level of smarts. Like, to be able to be doing all those things and then also running away from the law, like, it, it takes a level of smarts. So you're, it's just where you're applying those skills to. And if that's all you've seen, and I think there's also something to be said that, if that's all you've seen around your area and you are, haven't got those opportunities to go further, then it's hard for you to think of a life past that, you know? Absolutely. You're right. Absolutely. Spot on. So yeah, it's, it, it's a, yeah, <laughs> it's a, it's a madness. <laughs> it's honestly a madness. Um, and I guess for, for you then, and you've been working with, as we've been touching on, so you've been working with SCN, um, uh, people and individuals. Um, and so I guess one, can you explain what SCNH, what SCNMH is, but then also maybe what are some of the experiences of these students that you come across? Sure. I can do that. So when we talk about SCN, so there's two terms, there's SCN and SEMH. So SCN stands for special educational needs. So again, when we're talking, using education talk, there are things that we call barriers to learning. So barriers to learning are things that will stop a child who is able to learn to learn, right? So when we talk about special educational needs, these could be physical physical impairments. These could be uh, mental impairments. So for example, if we're talking about something like autism, and again, when we talk about impairments, it's, it's what are called challenges rather than impairments. Because... In a mainstream setting, there's a lot of skills, social skills that a person needs to be able to cope in a mainstream school, i.e. listening to instructions, understanding the language, um, impulse control. So, for example, if you're sitting in a classroom and you've got ADHD, it's going to be very difficult for you to sit for an hour in a classroom, especially if the teacher's boring or they're really... <laughs> Let's be real. That's why I wrote Actionary Teacher. And one of the yeah. things that don't be boring. If you're boring, think about when, I'm sure you've had this, where you're in a business meeting or you're in a meeting and it's the most boring meeting. On, like, oh my gosh. Oh, like this guy has a woman or person has had the DNA extracted of any piece of humor or excitement. And you have to sit there for hours on end. Think how our kids feel. Asleep, bro. I fall asleep. Yeah. Shakespeare was born in 1845 and he, I'm at the whole, for an hour, right? These are barriers to learning. So what we have to do is that we have to, um, so when we do, we're talking about SEM, special educational needs, schools have a legal requirement to make sure um, that they're making sure that those barriers to learning are mitigated or removed completely. So for example, yeah. if a young person with ADHD, what have we done to, 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 to cater for them so they can access the mainstream curriculum? Now, SEMH is slightly different. So SEMH stands for socio, um, Social, Emotional, Mental Health Needs. Now, with SEN is talking more about the access to learning, SEMH is talking more about behavior and their well-being, okay? Now, and they, there's, a, there's a bit of an interplay. There's a bit of a, 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 a crossing over. When we're talking about SEMH, a lot of the time we're dealing with young people who cannot access the mainstream curriculum because of perhaps the traumas and because of this, I can go really deep, but I'm trying to keep it simple. They can't, they find it very difficult. What you find with SEMH, what, how it presents itself is that these young people have difficulty in forming trusting relationships and forming mm. cohesive, uh, mutual relationships. And this blocks them from learning. So for example, if you've got a young person who's been abused, 
physically abused, violent, you know, verbally abused, and they come into school, they may have, and imagine this has gone on for years and years and years, they will have an issue. So, if it, you know, they might, have, they might have an issue trusting adults. So when an adult sh- shouts at a person, this just say this particular individual, then the adult in his head is like, sit down and take off your jacket. In the adult's head, they're thinking, you know, it's a simple instruction. But to the young person who's got SEMH in this particular case, that is a threat to their life. Because when they go yeah. home, when the adult shouts, that means something bad is going to happen. So that young person might react violently. That young person might walk away. That young person might space out. All right. So they've got what we call a maladaptive response. Okay. So when we're dealing with SEMH, which makes it slightly different to SEM, because SEM, we're talking about accessing the curriculum and learning. SEMH, we're talking about trying to create an environment that these young people can feel safe and these young people can respond in an appropriate way. And it's not their fault. So for example, and I write this all in my book as well. So for example, a young person, when we talk about maladaptive response, a lot of the time we're talking about what we call fight or flight. So the young person's learned a way to cope and survive, which protected them at the home, but it's not going to, it's not good in a, a mainstream setting. So I'll give you an example. You might have a young person again, let's talk about um, DV, domestic violence, who yeah. young person's at home, he sees his mother being beaten by, uh, by her father or his father every single day. That young person starts to do what we call disassociation, freeze response. So whenever there's violence or shouting, they space out. They literally check out. It's almost like you put a hand in front of their face, like, hello, someone in there? Yeah. Now, that is the brain's way of, of keeping them safe. Because if they don't feel anything, then nothing can hurt them. So if you look at um, victims, for example, of sexual assault, one of the, the traits that you might um, see, not in all, but some of the tra- traits is where they black out. If they know they're getting physically assaulted, they literally black out. And the reason why what's happening is the brain is trying to protect them. So if they're being you know, sexually assaulted, heaven forbid, the brain is like, you know what, let's not even try and remember this. Let's try and literally block it out and you just lie still and then you don't feel anything. Okay? So this young person goes into school. That's witnessed all this type of stuff. An adult or somebody else shouts at them. They space out. And I've seen this. It's like, huh? What? What? It's what we call disassociation. Now, some people might say, a teacher that's not um, trained in this might say, he's just dopey or she's dopey. I'm just using, but you know. He's not- yeah, labeling them. So, but then I'll be looking at that as a, a trauma-informed practitioner and saying, hmm, this is, that's not healthy. So my job would be like, okay, what are the conditions where they disassociate? How can we mitigate to get that, to keep them in the room, so to speak? There's lots of examples, but does that, hopefully that makes it clear. And what you tend to find with SEMH is that they, how, one of the ways we measure it is something called ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. So the more ACEs a young person has, the more likely they're to have a maladaptive response. So an ACE could be domestic violence, a parent dying when they're young suddenly, um, what else? Drugs in the home or addictions in the home. What other things can be there? Um, violence, sexual abuse, assault, even neglect. So the, the parents might not be physically hitting the child or the parents might not be you know, physically hurting them or even saying anything to them. But literally, if you're not feeding them, if you're not you know, doing things like ironing their clothes, that is abuse. And that's an ace. And these things all will present themselves in the classroom. So hopefully that's kind of giving you a picture. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And I, I think for I think for some people that whoever that whoever's listening, um, is that, you know, I think 
like especially I think for me as I've started to like I'm doing my like I was saying I'm doing my master's and I'm doing it in social work and so and I think I've had a lot of experience with like youth work and support work and things like that and you hear the stories of some children and you see where they're at now and you you're there just like it makes sense like it makes sense sort of that you're not able to trust people because you couldn't even, you couldn't trust the person that's supposed to love you, provide you with warmth and everything else like that. So no wonder why in classrooms you maybe don't listen to the teacher or you don't listen to authority. Um, and I think there needs to be that understanding and that empathy. But as you said, not all teachers are trauma-informed. And I think what's saddening is that for teachers, sometimes even if you are trauma-informed, you don't have the time or the resources to then deal with that. Like if you've got a class of 30 and you've got a kid checking out in the corner, that kid just needs maybe five minutes of just, let me talk to you. What's going on? What's in your head? Breathe. Let me take you out the room. Come back in. You can't do that. You got twenty nine other kids to to teach. Like, and Absolutely. yeah, go on. And just to add on what you're saying, and that is the whole reason why I wrote the Action Era Teacher. Okay, because I understand that the thing is sometimes for teachers we do these trainings, and I remember there was a training at the school I was at um, a while ago, and it was a therapist talking, and I'll never forget this training. She said like, if a kid is kicking off and they've got you know all these issues, you know. Take the kid outside the class, go for a walk with them, play, you know, basketball with them or whatnot, what have you. And I'll never forget one of my colleagues put his hand up and was like, so while you're doing all of that, what's happening to the other 29 kids in the classroom? So while you're playing basketball, this kid, calm them down. Why are you, you know, what is going on? So in my mind, when I wrote the Action Era Teacher, I've got, I've got something called a two-minute rule. And where I come, this is where I got, I got to it. Now, the typical lesson, give or takes about an hour. Right, you've got 30 kids. 60 divided by 30 is what? Two. All right. So any method I teach you in my book, it's got to work in two minutes because that's all you have per kid, right? It's got to be a two-minute fix because you haven't got the time, as you said. The analogy I give is when I train teachers, I say to them, I'm not here to make you a therapist. I'm not here to make you a counselor. That's not my job. I compare it to being a paramedic versus a, a surgeon. All right. If somebody is on the roadside, the paramedic will come. Their job is to stabilize that person. They're not, you've never seen them do surgery on the road. Maybe they'll do like emergency stuff, but their job is to patch them up so they're well enough to get to the hospital to get specialist care. That is mm. the job of a paramedic. They're not there to, to operate. They're there to, to stabilize. And that's why I say to teachers, you, so if you've got a young person who has come from a home of domestic violence, drug abuse. It's not your job to try and fix their issues. You're not trained for that, all right? You haven't got the time to do that. But your job is to stabilize them enough so that they can learn or you can signpost them to the correct individual. That's why I always say you can't take on things that you're not trained for. Even myself, as as much as I've read and done stuff, I, I acknowledge in myself there are things that I can't deal with. I have not got the capacity nor the training to deal with. So I'm going to pass them on to whoever needs the, the, the school counselor or the therapist or the CAMS team or whoever, right? So that's what I say to, to, to people is that, you know, it's not about you trying to fix all their problems. It's about stabilizing mm. that young person. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I think that's, um, I mean, I'm not a teacher, but I'm sure just having that breakdown in terms of that, you're there just to stabilize them. And so, 
they can engage with the lesson and that you not end up having a kid. Like if you can stabilize them with that two minutes, you then not having a child then then has to go to isolation. And then, and then you don't have that, you go to isolation and then you miss out on class and you're behind. And then it's just then a, a rolling snowball. That's not the word I'm looking for. You know, when you're looking for a word yeah, and you're like, it's not coming out, but. <laughs> Escalates. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely. So I, I think that's a really good analogy that you probably use with teachers and stuff like that. And how do teachers respond when you are teaching them this? To be honest with you, um, one of the things I said with Action Hero Teacher, and it, it kind of, it, it's funny, really. I'll, I'll tell another analogy, another story. I'm sure you'll do that. I hope your listeners are enjoying my stories. I've had a very <laughs> colorful life. Um, the problem with a lot of the, what I found, and I inadvertently found this, by the way, is the problem with mm. a lot of behavior management books is they can be very condescending, or they can be very dry academically. They're very dry texts. Like Sigmund Freud said, that the psyche of the, in the, the idea is accident. I'm like, when a kid's throwing a chair at me, I'm, Sigmund Freud is not going to help me, bruv. <laughs> you know, an academic, you know what I mean? I, I, not academic, I'm not like, you know, like Captain America, like putting the academic text in front of my hand, you know, in front of the chair, you know, or they can be really condescending or they don't, they don't explain the psychological aspects of what they're doing. So they, to, a book will say, tell your kids to sit down and be quiet. Why? How, what about if he's got STMH? How's that going to affect the person? So I said, I need to write this book and I want to write it in a way, like the way I'm talking to you, right? Mm. Very conversational. I don't know if you've read my book, but it's very, very, I wanted it not to be dry. I wanted it to be humorous. I wanted it to be literally that like you could hear my voice in your head. All right. Yeah. And I remember when I went to go and write this, I had a black colleague of mine and he said to me, it's a brilliant idea, Carl. It's a great idea. But he goes, no one's going to want to buy your book. And I said, why, mate? And he goes, because you're a black man. And they don't respect black men in education. Another black man told you that. Now, the joke of it is what I discovered later. When I was looking at UK, British black men that have wrote books, I could only find two before me. I could, I'm not saying there's, there's no others. I'm not saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's, it's rare. So you had Bernard Coates. He wrote a book called the, oh, I've forgotten the title. It's a long title. Um, education needs, so the, um, the education system, it's basically how West Indian children are felt by the education system. They made edu- educably subnormal. And this was in small acts um, as well. So that, that he wrote that in the 70s. Then you've got uh, Dr. Tony Sewell, the infamous Dr. Tony Sewell, wrote actually a great book in the na- late 90s, early 2000s called Black masculinities and schooling. Yeah. And me. And he wrote that in the 90s. And then I wrote Action Teacher 2019. So I said, basically, once every 20 years, a black man writes a book. That's yeah. not. No, it's not. Yes. <laughs> like, we're like a comic. Like, you see us once every 20 years. So when I saw that, I was like, no, I'm going to write this. I'm going to write it. Um, and it's really, I think re- people have really taken to it. It's, it's opened, you know, so many doors for me. It was a slow start in a, in a year. Again, I've never wrote a book before. I, I published it more or less on my own back. Um, I didn't have marketing or anything like that, but especially after George Floyd that was, uh, uh, and um, Black Lives Matter, there was a lot of spotlight on black educators. And then from then, that's when it kind of took off. And in lockdown as well, I think a lot of people were more, weren't as busy. 
So, you know, yeah. time to look into things. And I wrote a blog as well. That blog became one of the t- top 10 blogs in the UK, education blogs. My book won on a book award. Then I got a, a fellowship in the Royal Society for the Arts based on my work. So I think the, the, the key thing, the thing I'm proudest of is I said, I wanted to write a book that for non-teachers that anybody can pick up and read. I'm parent, a big brother, a youth worker. I'm not, although it says teacher, it's not for teachers. So what I'm proudest of is that I managed to pull it off. And people yeah. looking at the comments, um, uh, the reviews on Amazon and Wales, people really, I think they find it quite refreshing. And that's what I wanted to do. So that's what I think I'm proudest of that. I'm, I'm right. Yeah. Now, congratulations, bro. Like, and I, I'm glad you didn't let someone's words deter you because, you know, by the sounds of it, it's needed by what you've done. And you'll say, as you're saying, every 20 years, a black man releases a book um, in education. Like, it shouldn't be like that, you know, because you guys, even though we make up a small percentage, and I don't even know the percentage, but I think I remember seeing a stat that, like, we may, maybe we make up, it's not 2% that we make up of the UK population, it's more than that. But I think, yeah. UK population is 3%. So I think, I think the statistic was something even smaller about the percentage of black teachers um, and then black male teachers as well, probably even smaller. And just to add on that, black male teachers uh, as a group, a demographic group are the fastest group to drop out of education. Once they get trained um, as a teacher, they are the the most likely to drop out within five years. Black male teachers. Interesting. I wonder why, why do you think that is? Oh, there's there's a lot of things. Um, Institutional racism. Sorry. I know people don't like saying that, but definitely institutional racism. Lack of mentorship, lack of opportunities. Um, Also, I I can only talk for myself, but when I talk to other black male teachers, it's the the, um, pigeonholing. So what you find with black teachers, they tend to be put into pastoral roles. So if you're a science teacher and you want to do work on the curriculum, so i.e. deciding the lessons for science, you're less likely to get that. You're more likely to get like a head of year, which is pastoral. Don't get me wrong, I'm pastoral, so I fit the stereotype. But there are people that are not pastoral. But those are the only opportunities you get. But as I was saying, the lack of mentorship, the lack of the institutional racism, the way that um, black male teachers are perceived as aggressive and overbearing and overruling and all that type of stuff, um, uh, also, the pe- the progression we don't get the chance to progress as other colleagues progress and be put on fast tracks, and we vote with our feet. Unfortunately, yeah, quite unfortunate because I think there's so many black kids, uh, black male kids that would have loved to have seen a black teacher. Like at uni, I I think it was I think he might have been the first black teacher I actually ever had, and that's at uni. Considering oh. you start school from like year what five no from five years old sorry like I I, I can't think yeah. of the black teacher I had but then I also felt it's not that he was a great lecturer because he wouldn't even finish his lectures he would just talk majority of the time but I felt like I had to back him like I was like no 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 listen give this man like people would be chatting rubbish about him and I think I had to back him because I was like he's the only black teacher like I've had like I I can't can't let him get this slander. Up in here So it, Yeah it's, it's saddening Like it's, it's, It is quite saddening Because I think There should be more Like black Male role models Within teaching Because It's good for them It's good for Kids to see So Yeah Absolutely 
Um, so in terms of, I guess you were in terms of black hero teacher, um, you sort of, I, I think throughout this whole conversation, we've sort of talked about it and touched on it. Um, and you sort of explained where it came from, um, and sort of the impact that it has, is had now. Um, so I guess I also want to find out sort of how has it been sort of running workshops and working with teachers? Um, and maybe also what are your sort of future aspirations and hopes for it too? Brilliant. Um, I think talking on a very personal level, I think, and again, I want to word this correctly. What happened with George Floyd, uh, the murder of George Floyd, and what happened with the subsequent Black Lives Matter movement made a significant um, shift. Um, as I said, when I wrote the book, Action Era Teacher, and I went on Twitter, I went on Twitter September 2019. No followers, no nothing. I think up until, trying to remember now, when did George Floyd happen? May 2020. I think I had something like a thousand yeah. followers. But again, and I'm going to explain why I'm, I'm using this. After George Floyd, I think come that following September, I went up to 6,000 followers. Currently, as it stands, I'm on 10,000 followers on Twitter. Now, the reason why I say that is not even about bragging or anything like that. I feel that what happened, and I'm sure you, you, know, you saw it yourself, was it's almost like a door that opened. There was a door, which is closed now. It's firmly closed, but there was a door that was open for a couple of months where people were really willing to engage and recognize and, and resonate with the black experience. And I remember where it started for me was on Twitter. They were talking about this, the George Floyd and whatnot. And then there, there's a guy, big up Amjad Ali. And this is where it started for me, where he was like, look, it's all well and good to talk about um, all these educators. But he goes, he said something, goes, he's, I believe he, again, I don't want to get this wrong, but he's from the, he's, I don't know if he's Pakistani or Indian, but, I'm presuming I'm Jad Ali, so I'm presuming like, I could be completely wrong. Sorry, I'm Jad, if you ever listen to this. <laughs> Basically, along the lines of it's all well and good to talk about representation, but it goes, where where are all the black educators? You follow all these other educators, these white educators or whatnot, the establishment, but it goes, they're educators that are just as good. And then from there, and I wrote a blog called In Memory of George Floyd, and I just wrote my feelings. It's on my website. I think it's still the most popular blog I've ever wrote. And I just yeah. wrote my feelings about it. And then from then, that's when people were like, all right, let's jump on this. Now, the reason why I, I started off with that story was I think what has happened now is that there's an awareness that we have to make opportunities for people. It's not just a given, you know, and we have to make opportunities and we have to recognize that there are things that are blocking some people, for example, their skin color or their class. And I have to say, Although I hate the term allyship, and I won't go into that why I hate the term. I have to say there are many people that are pushing more people to the front and saying, you know what, Carl or Tino is just as good as whoever or whoever. And that's what we need. It's not about, people think, oh, you know, you just want to push black people. What if they're not as good? I'm not saying that. I, 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 nobody's saying that. If the person is not as good, they, can't, they shouldn't get the job. I'm very much for it. I don't want to be given something not based on merit, right? But what people are starting to recognize is that even if, so to use an arbitrary scale, you've got John who gets an A, I get an A. I've got more experience on my CV, but John will get the job because he is white or of a certain class. 
I've got more experience. I deserve that job. We're not saying that. John gets an A. I get a D. John has got more experience than me. You should give me the opportunity because I've got it just because I'm black. That's not what we're saying at all. So what has ended up happening is I think it's opened a gateway, which I've noticed where people are more, and I don't know if you've noticed this, Tina, people are more receptive to hearing these ideas. I'm not saying it's perfect, but definitely during that period of time when that door was open, it was a lot more. And to be give credit where credit's due, there's a lot of organizations that are still pushing and saying, we haven't forgotten and we are going to continue to push. No. Yeah, I, 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 I'd, I'd say, yeah, I, I noticed um, I noticed that even just when you saw the sales of black books and black authors of people like there were like books like about like why I don't talk to white people no longer and the black British experience or black and British um, by David. I forgot how to say his other name. Yeah, there we go. Thank you. Um, but you saw those books being sold out and you saw so many more conversations, even just like. Like some people don't vibe with taking the knee, but who would have ever thought we would have seen taking the knee in football and like saying no to racism and things like that. And even if you think it's tokenistic or anything else like that, like I've seen, I've seen the England coach talking about racism and I would have never thought, I would have never pictured that that would have happened. And it's saddening that it took a man dying on screens for eight minutes, but I, yeah, I think we've seen now that those conversations are even have been having being had more. And even today, like I think there's a there was something about this. It's not about black people, but um, in terms about the Scottish cricket team have found to be institutionally racism. What? How do you judge institutional racism? I would have never thought, but like we're we're having these conversations, and I think it's good that it's at least in the psyche. So when we bring it up. People don't think, oh, no, these guys are just, they're just, you know, talking rubbish or, yeah, always moaning. Like, they've got it good. What what are they even on about? Like, so, yeah, I think it's, yeah, like I said, sad that it had to happen in that way, but quite fortunate that we're now having these conversations more. Absolutely. So... Um, um, I love, I've loved this whole conversation we've had and, um, <laughs> is these, some of these conversations can go on forever and this one easily could. Um, but I just wanted to ask you just sort of two more, uh, just two more questions. Um, how have your experiences as a teacher shaped you? Hmm, that's a very good question. I think to be honest with you, it's made me more patient. I think made me more patient, made me more understanding, it's made me more analytical. Um, I think teachers, teaching in of itself as a skill set is a fantastic skill set to have. I think teachers are some of the, the best, um, let, me, let me phrase this, I think teaching lends itself to so many different things, not necessarily just being in a, in a, in a classroom. Because being a teacher, you have to literally, you, you've got to manage so many different skills. You've got to be a leader. You've got to know how to lead. You've got to know how to read the room, to be emotionally present, to stamp your authority, to, um, to organize and to plan. Okay. You've got to be able to, you know, and I think one of the greatest skills of good teachers are, you know, you write a lesson plan, but something can go completely pear-shaped. So the projector doesn't work, not projector. Oh, no, that's too old school. The computer doesn't work or um, the, the, the whiteboard doesn't work. What are you going to do then? You have to think on your feet. You've got to have a plan B. You've got to have a plan C. You've got to be able to manage your time. So I feel, because ironically, I'm, I, am, I am 
as of the, you know, the next couple of months, I'm walking out of the classroom because I'm doing, I'm being an education consultant. So I won't be a teacher per se anymore. All right. Because of what I'm doing with action here, teacher. So I'm one of now, I've become one of those statistics that I've left the profession. Although I've went sideways, I haven't left the profession, but you know what I mean? I'm, I'm walking out yeah. of the profession. But I think that what, what it's done is made me a better person. It's made me, and I, and I think being a teacher actually lends itself to entrepreneurship and creativity because, you know, that's what I'm entering in now. And I find it's not as stressful as maybe somebody who's not done that before because of all these multiple skills that you have to, you have to do to be an effective teacher, you have to have. So that's what I believe. But I think the most important thing is it's made it, it made me a better thinker. It's made me a better thinker, more understanding of people. Yeah. A very, all very good skills to have. And yeah, as you're saying, you've got to manage so many different things. Um, and you, you always know those teachers that maybe can't cut it when something goes wrong and they're all flustered. And as a kid, you know, they're flustered and you're there and you, and, and because you're a child, you're like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to like pounce on this. I'm going to make sure I run this through the ground. Like I had a maths teacher and I was poor at maths. Um, my dad was a maths teacher and it made me, it made it it felt, yeah, exactly. It felt even worse that I was bad at maths and my dad was a maths teacher. Um, but like I had a classroom, I ended up being in the fifth set. I only got a C in maths. Like it was struggle for me. And the teacher could not hack it. Like, and everyone else, bear in mind, this is like year 10. Everyone pried, everyone hounded on her. People made her cry during lessons. Awful, to be honest with you. But you, when you when some people see weakness, they just go at it. But then I I was able to move up a set, and I had one teacher that was just was able to. It was still a smaller class, but she was able to focus on me and support me and help me out. And I think as we were just saying, I've sort of lost my point. But there's so many things that a teacher has to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so many things that a teacher has to do and to be able to do. And like she was being emotionally intelligent because maybe she understood that I wasn't as good at maths, but she was also having to manage the whole class. And like you were saying, one teacher can't do that and another one does, and it just changes the success of your students. So I think it's amazing that you've been able to get those skills from teaching um, and that you're now moving sideways and doing something a bit different, but also I think more aligned with your passions from what I've been hearing. Fantastic, yeah. Absolutely spot on. Um, so uh, this is the final question that I ask all my guests. Um, and it's say if there's a black boy that is discovering their masculinity and discovering what it means to be themselves. Um, how can this conversation or something you know or something you've came across in your life um, or something from your teaching experience, how do you think that can help them with an understanding of self? Hmm, that is a very big question. Yeah, I realize. <laughs> hmm. Okay, this is what I would say to them. Part of being a man is the ability to have your own thoughts in your own mind. Going on, especially, you know what? Actually, it's right. So I'm talking to myself now. What oh, I found cool. when I was teaching a lot of these young people, especially in the inner city, uh, and the socioeconomically disadvantaged place was a lot of them felt a lot of pressure. They felt like, oh, I have to be in a gang or I have to do this because my friends will think I'm weak or they're going to think, you know, people think less of me. And, and sometimes it's not even a gang. It's like, this is what society expects from you. 
I have to, as a black man, I have to be strong. There's this whole perception of us being, you know, strong, like tanks. Like we've got to be able to fight and we've got to be able to get girls or get boys because, you know, again, that's another thing that's encoded in our society. Um, and I can go, I won't go into that, but this, the, the sexual energy of black people, you know, I can't get the word I want to say, but it's, there's a sexual energy about us that we're great lovers. Women are all like curvy and all that type of stuff. And the men, you know, we all know the stereotype about the men. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's this expectation. And what I would say to a young black boy um, about masculinity, for me, it's the ability to stand on your own two feet and to make your own two, make your own choices. That is the biggest thing to find yourself, whatever that masculinity expresses itself as. It could be being a nerd. It could be watching Dragon Ball Z. It could be drawing. It could be things that are not associated with typically masculine stuff. But you've got to be yourself. You've got to be your own man, right? And you've got to learn your own path. And the sad thing is, unfortunately, and this is statistics, I'm not even talking conjecturally, I believe the statistic stands in the black community that seven out of 10 um, black children are born out of wedlock. And I think it's something like five out of 10 do not have a stable relationship with their fathers. This is statistics. This comes from the uh, ONS, right? This is not me. And the problem is, I think uh, one of the biggest problems, there's a guy called Craig Pinkney, brilliant guy, who um, he's a lecturer and he looks at um, stuff to do with gangs. And one of the things he says is that a lot of these boys are looking for masculine figures and the only masculine figures they can see in the environment are the drug dealers, are the people that are up to no good. And it gives a twisted or warped sense of what it is to be a man because they haven't had that stable influence in their life. And what you will hear from um, gang leaders is they ask them, how do you pick your young people? Because I look for people that haven't you know, come from unstable homes where they can leave 10 o'clock at night and you know, no one's going to check where they are and stuff like that. They get groomed the same way we look, you know, pedophiles look at young people. It's the same way some of these gang leaders look at these young people. Well, I'd say so I'm going off tangent here. Being a man is the ability to believe in yourself and to stand in your own decisions. And that sometimes means going against other people's decision and going against other people's expectation. If you can do that and you can withstand that, then you are a man. Forget what everybody else says. You don't have to go and pick up a knife or a gun. I'm not even being stereotypical, but you don't have to do those things. You don't have to do what society expects of you or your friends expect of you or your family expects of you. That is the biggest stumbling block. And that is what I think true masculinity is, is being able to stand in in yourself and love yourself and not be bothered what other people think of you. Bro, 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 bro. Um, so Carl, thank you very much thank you. Uh, for coming on to the podcast. I've enjoyed this whole conversation that we've had. And like I said, we could have gone on for two hours. We could have done a Joe Rogan, you know, <laughs> we could have kept going. Pull up the video, Jamie, pull up the video, right? That video. <laughs> I don't know if you've got a Jamie there. Is it Jamie who always talks to you? I don't know. Yeah, someone in it. It's someone. I would love a Jamie. I think we'd all love a Jamie in it. Just be like, pull it up. So. Maybe we could do a part two. I'm always game, so let me know.
Yeah, you know what? It cut off a little bit there. Um, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. Um, but I'd love to do a part two, of course, always. Like, I'm always game for that. I mean, you've got Action Hero 2 coming out. So, yeah. you know, it, listen, you got a sequel, we'll do a sequel. So <laughs> <laughs> let's go, let's go. But thank you very much for coming on, man. Uh, it's been real to talk to you. Thank you. So, guys, um, that's the end of this episode. Um, thank you very much for getting to the end of this one. I know it was a long one, um, but I really hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you got lots of value out of it. Um, if you're here at the end listening to this, like I said, thank you again um, for getting to the end of this episode. And I hope you got a lot of um, insight and um, value out of this episode. Um, and if you did, please just share it with your friends, share it with teachers, share it with um, people in the education system. You know, if anyone knows, you know, any politicians or anything, also I know, you know, Department of Education, maybe you can send them this conversation. Maybe they can be like, listen, maybe we do need to change it up a little bit. Maybe we do need some reforms in this. Um, Thank you again, Carl, for coming onto the podcast and bringing your passion and your energy. Um, I think that's one thing which I really enjoyed, just the energy you brought to this conversation. Um, I think we bounced off each other quite well. Um, and so, you know, when we have that sequel, that part two, you know, who knows? I would actually like to do it in person, to be honest with you. Because uh, Zoom is Zoom is great. Don't get me wrong. I can talk to people anywhere in the world. But when you're in a room with somebody, like it's just it's, it's just going to be completely different. So um, I don't want to keep you guys here for too long. But um, yeah, if you want to buy Carl's book or if you want to find out more about him, um, everything is in the show notes. Um, you can find all of the links and everything on the website. And um, I really hope you guys um, enjoyed this conversation. Please tell me if you did. Like I said, I don't want to keep you here any longer than you need to be. So I thank you very much for listening. Uh, and uh, we'll talk soon, guys. <laughs>